Good morning once again. Welcome to Crossroad. We're delighted to have you here. And this morning we're delighted to have uh, uh, a, a candidate for the position kind of, of college slash uh, youth pastor that we've been praying about, seeking about. Uh, that j- for those of you who are guests with us, we've been asking God to provide another pastor for us. And the search committee worked through uh, several resumes as well as brought, uh, kind of interviewed uh, several candidates and, and um, we met, I met J- Jeff Drew back in August. Uh, he was calling me just saying, hey, I think God's leading me um, back to Iowa from California. And uh, I was like, why would you move from California to Iowa? I'm not sure. Well, I can think of several reasons, but uh, I can also think of several reasons why not to. And, uh, and uh, he was just saying that he felt led back here. And he, uh, unfortunately, his wife couldn't come with him because she's pregnant. And uh, she had placenta previa, but God's worked that out, fortunately. Um, but we're gl- delighted to have Jeff Drew here. Um, we've been uh, just blessed by his heart for the Lord, his passion for young people, and his, also his love for communicating God's word. And so we're gonna, he's going to share with us this morning, and then afterwards we'll have a Q&A. So Jeff, come and share with us. Well, thank you, Will, for having me up here. And thanks to all of you, too, for just being so loving. I have found there's a thing called Iowa Nice since coming here from California because in California, we have California ignore you. So this is, uh, this is a really nice change. I also want to thank you uh, guys for just for praying for my wife. I know that many of you know that she is struggling with a complicated pregnancy. Uh, the placenta was just in a very inconvenient spot. And that's very hard for my wife because the doctor said she had to be on bed rest since, well, since the beginning of the pregnancy. And that's hard for her because she is an athlete. She is a level six uh, black belt in Taekwondo. She's a, a college soccer player, a national champion cyclist. And for a doctor to tell her that she has to stay in bed for nine months, well, it, it started out very hard. She, she learned to love it. She learned to say, remote, I need the remote, Jeff. <laughs> but after a while, you know, it, that gets old too. So uh, by your prayers, I believe, by your prayers, the doctor told us this Monday that the, the pregnancy is totally normal, no complications whatsoever. And if he had given us the news a little bit earlier, we actually would have been able to have both of us here this weekend. So thank you so much for your prayers. Um, I wanted to take you through a passage. I, I don't know what you guys expect from me, uh, but I wanted to let you know what to expect from me. And so I, I just wanted to give you a, a real rough understanding of, of kind of what to expect from my teaching, from my ministry. And it's going to take us uh, kind of what Jed was reading us this morning of this topic of not to scratch your itching ears. Our t- uh, sermon title today is titled, uh, Don't Scratch Your Itching Ears. If we ha- Do we have it on screen here? Whoop. There we go. Awesome. So one of the things that I've learned out here is that you guys are really curious about Californians. I think that you guys think it's another planet, um, which is, it works because we think that everybody else is another planet. But one of the things that we have in California that I think you guys don't have here much is earthquakes. Um, now earthquakes, you can always see the, the first earthquake that, it, that people experience because it's like a quick whoom, and then everything just kind of stops. And they look really afraid at first, but after a while, you kind of get used to it. They kind of become a little bit fun, and now when I experience an earthquake, the thought that runs through my head isn't really, oh no, oh no, oh no, it's, 
Am I going to have to get up? Is this going to get worse? And, you know, that's kind of the mindset. It's just a normal part of life. They're generally very mild. We have something like 300 earthquakes a year. Most of them aren't even detectable. But sometimes they get bad. And I've experienced bad. Uh, In 1994, the entire parking structure of California State University of Northridge collapsed. And you may have seen that in the news way back when. You may remember seeing pictures of that. But nothing has ever been as bad as what I saw in the aftermath of the uh, 2011 earthquake in Japan. Many of you probably remember in March 11th of 2011, a 9.0 earthquake hit the Tohoku region of Japan, and it was an absolutely devastating earthquake, just buildings collapsing all over the place. Uh, In fact, just to get you an idea of how bad a 9.0 earthquake is, this earthquake moved the entire island chain 7.5 meters east, and it even shifted the entire Earth's axis by 10 inches. That's how serious this earthquake was. But more serious than the earthquake itself was the resulting tsunami that raised more than 40 feet. Actually, it raised 150 feet in some places, and it killed almost 16,000 people. Well, I was actually part of a relief team that went after the earthquake hit, after the tsunami went through, and we started just doing disaster relief cleanup, that kind of thing, and one of the towns that we went to was a town called Onagawa, and Onagawa was reputed to be hit the absolute hardest by the tsunami out of all the regions of Japan. Here you see a picture of a five-story building that was totally tossed, about 200 yards, basically, uh, ripped out foundation, concrete, all of it in one swift move, almost ripping off like a Band-Aid. But you see, this was not only the site of the worst hit tsunami, but it was also the site of the worst tragedy of the entire earthquake season. You see, what happened was, uh, after the earthquake hit, it wasn't until about an hour later that the tsunami actually came in. There were warnings, the sirens were going off, everyone had time to go to safety, But in this case, what happened was there was a manager who worked in this building, and he told everybody, go to the top of the building, it will be safe. It's five stories high, there's no way the water will get you, go up here. Now the employees were questioning that because there was a place to go to. It was about 200 yards up the canyon, it was up by a hospital, and even then uh, the hospital, first two floors were even flooded, so you kind of get an idea of how high the water went. Well, what happened, of course, was the, they questioned it, but the manager said, trust me, you will be safe, listen to my words. They went up to the top, of course, the manager went to the safety zone, and then when the floods came in, the entire building was tossed like it was made out of tinfoil. Of course, everybody died, and it was the site of a national outcry. And the reason that I tell you this is because it paints a real picture that we need to understand. It is possible for you to believe when someone says that you are safe, but be totally wrong and destroyed because of their lies. And of course, I speak not only physically, but spiritually as well. Because every day, people are warned of the realities of what Scripture says. They are told that Those who do not abide with God, God will not abide with them. They are told that the lovers of sin will not inherit eternal life. And yet what they do is they pay attention to someone else who says, don't listen to that, you are fine, you are safe, the word of God in this area is not authoritative. And then they meet the worst of ends. There is great danger 
from ignoring truth, whether it's in an earthquake, a tsunami, or worst of all, in your spiritual condition. So today we're going to be taking a look at the importance of listening to God's Word. And of all places, we're going to go to the book of Judges, chapter 17. Uh, I'll give you a chance to, to find it in your Bibles, but I will have it on screen for you. So while you're thumbing through, I'll go ahead and thumb through up here. And I'm not doing the whole chapter. We're going to take it in little spurts, as you can see. But the gist of it we're going to cover. And it starts in verse 1. It says, There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he, was, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also about which you spoke to my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, uh, jumping to verse 7, now there was a young man in Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. To verse 10, and Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver per year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And then verse, oh, verse 13, and then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Now, like many of you, uh, when I was about 16 or so, maybe my junior year, for, uh, sophomore year in high school, I had a spiritual crisis in my life. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but uh, someone at school mentioned that Christians believe that if you are not saved by a forgiving relationship in Jesus, then you would not go to heaven. And I, they didn't even tell it to me. I, I overheard it in a conversation from somebody else, and that terrified me. Uh, my mom, I, I went up to her and I asked her, Mom, can you take me to church? And being an atheist, she wasn't very happy about that. Um, and she realized I was serious. So finally she looked at me and she said, Okay, but we're not going to a Baptist church. She thinks that you Baptists take the Bible a little bit too seriously. But she did that for everything. She said, I don't want to go to a Presbyterian church because they've got too many things going on, and I don't want to go to a, a fundamentalist church because, you know, they say that, you know, all the things that I love to do are sin. And, and one by one, she starts reducing all of the, the churches that she's willing to go to. And finally, she comes to me and she goes, okay, let's try to find a nice universalist church. That's the church that I'm willing to go to. And I didn't realize that at the time, and I don't know if you know what this means, but a universalist church means that they do not believe in the condemning power of sin. Many of them don't even believe that sin really exists. They just call them mistakes or faults or those kinds of things. And then therefore they believe that everybody goes to heaven. No matter what you do, who you are, everybody is saved. And therefore there's no relationship break between you and God. 
But you see, now I look back and I realize what was going on in our minds and in our hearts. You see, we were searching for a church, but we were not searching for God. We were, we were not searching for truth, nor were we searching for a solution for the problem that I originally proposed. I am scared that my sin is separating me from God, and therefore I will not be saved. But none of that mattered. What ended up is we ended up just trying to find a place to love the things that we already loved, to be affirmed in the things that we were already doing to find a place to worship the things that we already worshipped. And as it turned out, what we worshipped was ourselves. I don't think we had the, the profound mind to realize that. But what we worshipped was ourselves, and therefore we wanted a place to tell ourselves that we were already divinely qualified. And I think that regardless of your faith, regardless of your position, a little bit, everybody is in that position Everybody wants to be reassured, and they have a slight fear of truth, because truth condemns, truth exposes, truth is uncomfortable, and therefore it's very easy to fall into the trap of, well, I just want to be comfortable, and so we find teachers to tell us that we're okay. This is a process, as Jed just read for us in 2 Timothy, that Paul calls, calls the itching of ears. Scratching the itching of ears is kind of the implication, right? And it says this in 2 Timothy verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Behold, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. That kind of implies the uncomfortableness that goes with it, right? To endure sound teaching, but rather having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and instead wander off into myths. This is what I experienced in my family. This is the overwhelming experience that I see in the majority of people in society. And funny enough, this is exactly what we see happening with Micah and his mother, isn't it? They were not searching for truth. They were searching for myths to scratch their itching ears. In fact, to illustrate the magnitude of sin that we have in this passage, the, the voice of God doesn't even call out and condemn. He, he, he doesn't uh, punish. He, there, this whole story, there's not really any action of God. He's totally absent from it. Rather, all that we see is that the Word of God, it, He just comments. There's just a small comment and the comment that he gives is this. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when I was a little bit younger of a Christian, I would read this and be like, wow, they, did was, they had the, the ability to see what was right in their eyes and then do it? That's amazing. That's not what it says. What it says is that there was no king, and they did what was right in their own perception. Basically, if you read this, there's a little bit of a, of a linguistic thing going on where it says there was no king, and rather the reason there was no king is because there were many kings, because everyone was a king, and therefore everyone did whatever pleased them, and whatever pleased them, they did it, and then called it righteous. Here we have a situation where a son steals from his mother just an unbelievable sum of money, 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, I can't tell you exactly what the value of that is in today's money. It says 11,000 
pieces, um, the weight of that would have been like 24 pounds of silver. So we can calculate it's like $10,000 maybe in today's market. But back then, most certainly it would have been way more than that. Uh, Silver was not nearly as plentiful. We hadn't mined out the earth like we have in today's world. So it was just a crazy amount of money. And he stole it, right? Uh, Even to the point to where it harmed his family so much that mom cursed not like swear words, but uttering a magical curse, and then, uh, and then telling everybody about it. You got to listen to me, even going to her son, that somebody took this money. And so eventually what ends up happening is Micah, um, probably because he was afraid of being cursed, right? He goes to mom and says that 1100 pieces of silver, I took it. And, and then he's probably trying to search a way to mitigate the punishment that his mom was uttering against him. Well, look at what happens. He says, Mom, it was me. I took the silver. Here it is. I'm sorry. And then Mom turns and says this. She's, and pay attention to this. She says, I dedicate the silver to who? The Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know what that means. It's not just to the person who's the ruler of my life, although that encompasses part of it. But rather, she invokes the covenant-keeping, law-giving, holy, personal name of God. And then she says, and in doing so, I will make an image, a metal image, a carved image. And, and, And what this is a picture of is, at that time, the way the idols were made is you would hire a woodsmith or a woodcarver, he would carve the figure, and then he would hire a silversmith to put lays of silver over the top of it and hammer it on, and therefore you have a a silver idol. And what she's saying is that she is there by worshiping God, how? By creating a carved metal image. You see, here's the rub. The second commandment says in the book of Exodus, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Why? For I am the Lord, right? And then we see in the third commandment, you shall not take my name in vain. Why? Because I am the Lord. And then what does she say in response? I will dedicate silver and make a carved image to God. And therefore, she also breaks the third commandment in order to do so. I will worship God, invoke his name, and do the most unholy things as an act of worship to him. It's so messed up, and it doesn't seem so on the surface. If you just read through it, it's not easy to see, like, oh, okay, she's, it's worship. She loves God. This is cool. I guess everything's hunky-dory. But if you look closely, you begin to see that this generation was so lost in sin that it breaks the mind. It breaks the heart. Nothing goes right in this scenario. They knew of the existence of God, yes. How could they not? They were Hebrews, right? God delivered them across the the Red Sea on dry ground. He crushed the, the Egyptian nation by sending plagues. They would have that in their memory forever. So it's not like they forgot him. It's just that when they went to worship him, They worshipped him with whatever they pleased. They had no care about who he was. They had no care about what pleased him. They had no care about what was right or wrong or how God demanded to be worshipped. They just worshipped according to however they wanted to worship him. Whatever their heart declared they brought in worship. 
even to the point of hating God's word and his own very character. Isn't that wild? I will worship God even to the point of hating his character if it means I can worship him with my sin. But that's what we see happening here. This story is filled with people who are committing sin in forms of worship. Not only do we see Micah's mother, not only do we see Micah, but there's a Levite who gets into the picture. And also, if you keep reading the story, there's the whole tribe of the Danites who get involved in this thing. And then they steal the idol, and then they worship it in their town. It's wild. In fact, look at me at all the things that goes wrong in this worship scenario. Number one, Micah's mo- uh, mother utters a curse. Remember, it's not a swear word or like, right? It, it's like, I curse somebody who stole this by magic or, or whatever the means was. Even though Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20 says, whoever does this is an abomination. Micah's mother makes a carved idol and invokes the name of God, even though in Deuteronomy chapter seven, uh, 27 it says whoever does so will be cursed, and Leviticus 24 says whoever blasphemes the Lord shall be put to death. Number three, Micah took that carved image and made a shrine and put it in his house. Even though in Deuteronomy chapter 12 it says that they shall worship only in the place of God's own choosing, the temple. There is prescribed worship. Number four, Micah had other gods on that shrine. Even though God says directly, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm trying to tie them into Deuteronomy uh, because they're all in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.14 says, do not worship any gods of the people around you. Number five, Micah ordained one of his sons as a priest, even though only Levites are able to be priests. And that's found in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 33. And then finally, after all is said and done, in the end, Micah wasn't even seeking God's own glory, but rather he reveals later that he's only trying to please himself through worship, right? We see in verse 6 where it says that uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then we see this playing out later in verse 13 where we finish, where it says that the only reason he got a Levite is because he thought that now God will bless him. Nowhere is God in the equation except for gimme, gimme, gimme. Approve, approve, approve. Don't condemn, don't condemn, don't condemn. That's the only relationship that Micah wants to have with God. And listen, there will always be a temptation for you to do what we see happening here. I don't want you to hide behind the curtain and say, well, I'm a Christian, therefore this scenario is not something that I personally have to worry about. There will always be a temptation to do this, to take holy worship and make it about you. To make it about justifying and defending your sin. To take whatever you are knitting your heart to and declare that it's acceptable to God. And I don't know what that is for you guys. I know what it is for the people in my church, and at this point I would tell them directly. I'm not going to say names or anything like that, but we need to know where we are loving sin and refusing to approach God. And whether it's through uh, declaring that my, my anger is instead righteous indignation or trying to defend passions of the flesh, these are areas where we Christians even try to approach God in worship with our sin, isn't it? So we need to be careful. In fact, you may eventually even find a great growing difficulty in finding pleasure in God's Word as it is written. 
Instead, you will wish that God said something else. You will read God's Word and think, I don't like that. And you will begin then the pursuit of trying to collect teachers around you who will say that you don't have to be sanctified in those areas, but instead they will make very lofty and contrived arguments why what the Bible says isn't what it actually means. Even though God expressly forbids it, they will tell you that your sin is not only acceptable to God, but that He somehow even takes pleasure in it. And you may be tempted to fall into there if you are not careful. It may snatch you up if you are not loving God's Word. Why will you be at such risk? Because of what we see in this passage. Those teachers who tell you that your sin is okay look almost identical to the ones who worship properly. They will call upon God's name. They will sing the same songs that you sing. They will do the same rituals. They will do the Lord's Supper. They will baptize. They will read many of the same scriptures that you love. You will see Psalm 23 read at every single one of these churches most likely. It will look just like real worship. They will use God's symbols. They will use his language. This is what Micah did, isn't it? We see that he made an ephod. You guys know what an ephod is? It's like that breastplate with the 12 gems on it that the priests would wear, each gem for a tribe of Israel. It's holy garments. He had one of those. It looked like it. He invoked God's holy name. He had a Levite as a priest. He had all of it. And then he just snuck in his idols when nobody was looking. He just brought his sin along with that as if now it's somehow acceptable. And for all that, even though God is mysteriously absent from this passage, the indication is clear. When Micah did that, God was not pleased. We cannot bring our sin to God in any fashion except on the the sacrificial altar of Christ and have God be pleased with us. And therefore, I promise you, in the end, Micah was judged harshly Why? Because God said in Deuteronomy 27, Cursed is anyone who does not conform to the words of this law. How? By doing them. Not by knowing them. Not by weaseling around them. But by doing them. And then Galatians chapter 6 makes it even more blunt. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will what? Reap from the flesh corruption. That's juxtaposed against eternal life. He says right after that, but the one who sows according to the Spirit will reap what? Eternal life. So if you sow according to the flesh, eternal life is not possible. We need to make sure that we are loving God's Word by hating our sin, not bring it to, bringing it to him in worship, but asking him for forgiveness of it. It's that simple. If you love sin and bring it to God in worship, no matter how much you love it, no matter how much someone else tells you that it's safe, if you worship God with sin, you will make the darkest of ends. And therefore, I'm serious when I ask you to be brave enough to tackle this in even the most smallest and subtle areas of your life, Paul says, even you who stand 
Take heed lest you fall. Our enemy is a wily deceiver, isn't he? So as long as we are alive, he doesn't watch, watch you walk into the church and say, I give up. He will continue to try to tempt us to bring our sin to God in worship. And as I said, whether it's through your celebration of lustful passions, or as Paul says, our youthful passions, whether it's trying to defend the unkind way that we're treating people, or whether it's imposing harsh rules that the book of Hebrews says deal only with food and drink and have no power to perfect the conscience of the believer. We are all needing to be on guard of these things that our flesh loves. Why? Because the Word of God does not condemn the things that we hate, but it condemns the things that are the bastions of love and passion for us, doesn't it? And learning to say that God hates the things that we love is very, very hard. Still, I've been a Christian for 17 years, I think now, and still I am reading God's Word and finding that He says He hates things that I love, and that is very, very hard to accept. It's very easy to say, Pastor, tell me it's not so. But it's our growing responsibility that we do love what God says, and that we worship Him in holiness in the way that He commanded us to, by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because this is our spiritual worship. The obedience. That's Romans chapter 12. So what do we do then? If we know that we have no ability to please God in our flesh, And if we have the very startling realization that we have no power to be pleased with God in our flesh, what's a boy to do? Well, the simple answer is this. Fill your mind with God's Word anyway, and transformation will happen. This is the promise of God. If we learn to love God's Word by reading His Word, then we will be transformed according to to his word, right? This is the solution. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And the way I'm going to illustrate it is this. There's a true story of a man who was, he was brilliant, brilliant beyond all measure. He, uh, at the age of 17, uh, he started living with his girlfriend, and um, at that time, his life was a mess. He was living with his girlfriend, had, a, had a, a, a baby out of wedlock, but that didn't stop him because by the age of 23, he was already teaching at a university in northern Africa. Uh, he wrote books on philosophy that were being used in the university. By the age of 28, he became the imperial professor of rhetoric and philosophy at the University of Milan. And it seemed like he was, of all people, the least likely individual to ever love the Lord, to love the Word. He was a man of the world. He taught according to the world. He spent his entire life ministering to people in the name of the world. And yet, as he recalls, one day he was walking down the street and he hears a group of little girls jumping and playing and singing as they often do. And I love that. I, I see little boys play mean smell this, right? <laughs> Girls, we just found out that our, our baby's a boy, so I'm still decompressing. <laughs> he told us it was a girl at first, yes, 
And he said many times, I see nothing here, so it's a girl. And then we go to another doctor. He goes, your doctor's an idiot. <laughs> Boy. I'm like, oh. So I had to do the, the confessional phone call. Mom. It's a boy, and then I'm mad at you, Jeff. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, he seemed like the least likely person, and then he sees a bunch of girls singing and playing, and, and who knows what it was, but they're singing the song, and, and it's going, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it, and this man, as he hears it, he doesn't know what they're talking about. All he says is that from that immediate minute, He's impacted to think they must be speaking of the Word of God, not to see it, but to grab it, to take hold, and to open and read it. And he recalled of an occasion where a friend of his experienced miraculous conversion just by doing what the one thing I never recommend to any of you. God, what do you say? That, right? But that's what he did, and his friend was converted. So he said, I will do that. So he starts flipping his Bible, opens it up, plop, lands right on verse 13 of Romans chapter 13, and here it says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and what? Make no provision to satisfy the flesh and gratify its desires. And he said that at that very minute, he needed not read any further, for he knew immediately what he must do with his sin. And he said that a light shone in infused into his heart, and all darkness vanished away. And as they say, the rest is treasured church history because this man became St. Augustine of Hippo, likely the greatest theologian who ever lived besides the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ himself. St. Augustine, if you read his confessions, will tell you this story, and it's a great story. Read the Word Take up the word and read it. Listen, I am no stranger to temptation. I am no stranger to loving evil. I am no stranger to committing wicked, wicked sin. We pastors have lives and pasts, and and we're just as broken as you are. But to learn to take up and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's our call. Because our call is not merely to stop our sin, but John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says our job is to love obedience. Right? What does he say? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and then obedience, therefore, is not burdensome, he says. The love of God is not merely to keep the commandments in just begrudgingness, but to love the obedience, the transformation of heart. That is your job. And how do you get that? Only by the way that St. Augustine endured. By picking up the Word and reading it. Jed read for us today. By the way, Jed, when you read, you have a wonderful way of communicating just the love of God. And, and wait, was it Chris that read, read this one? Chris read, when you were reading uh, 2 Timothy I usually, when I hear uh, the, the words of Paul, I think like, <laughs> right? but when you read it, I just feel his love. That's, that's a great gift that you have. But we see in Psalm 19, in the Psalms, um, I believe it's David who wrote this actually. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
and it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, and they make the heart rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and it enlightens the eyes. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter are they than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in them is keeping great reward. And without this word, I promise you, we have no hope to be revived. We have no hope to be made wise. We have no hope to rejoice, to be enlightened, and no hope to be warned, and no hope to reap great reward. True. We need to be reading God's Word. And so what I want to do for you is just to illustrate the fact that if Micah would have only just read the Bible, he didn't even have to read all of it, just, just Deuteronomy. That's it. He could have found all of the things that he was doing was sin and unacceptable and that judgment would come from them if only he had read the first you know, 20 chapters of Deuteronomy and that's it. How do you keep from falling into sin? By hiding God's word in your heart that you may not sin against him. So here are some practical tips that I want to give to you just how to boost your Bible reading. Uh, and these are things that I found, some things that friends have taught me, um, some things I pull from scripture. But number one, make sure that you are reading consistently. One of the great temptations is to think that the Bible uh, that Bible reading need only be done at church or at Bible study or you know, when, it, when it sparks the brain. But that's not enough. You spend 120 hours, waking hours, doing other things in this world. That 10 minutes on Sunday is not enough to combat the stuff that the world is pumping into your head. We need to be reading God's Word and we need to be reading it consistently. You need to read it daily. Joshua 1.8 says that you shall not let the book of the law depart from your mouth even, but you shall what? Meditate on it day and night so that you may be able to do what's written in it. If you do not have a daily Bible reading plan, please develop a daily Bible reading plan. Even just one chapter a day. You'll get through the Bible in three years. It'll take a while. But it's better than not reading anything at all. Read it daily. Number two, pick a time that suits your schedule and that you can keep your mind active while reading the Bible. Now, as a pastor, I'm a big fan of when people pretend to be holy and put their coffee in their Bible and put it on Instagram, right? I'm having coffee with Jesus, right? And I love that people can, can get up first thing in the morning and read the Bible. Or I love the picture of, of someone sitting down at the bed and reading their Bible just before bedtime. I love that as a pastor. As a person, I hate that. Why? Because I don't wake up until 10.30 in my brain. Like, I, I, what time is it? I am, I'm waking up officially in 15 minutes inside my head. I can't concentrate on anything this early in the morning. And because I have kids, by the time 7 o'clock comes around, I'm out. I'm like on robot mode. And if I read anything, I can't read it to save my life or in this case to save my very soul. But 5 p.m., right before everyone you know, goes home for work, boom. That's my prime time. And I know that. And you need to know your time. If you're in this pattern of reading when the house is a, a clamor and you're not getting it, pick a different time. It's okay. 
But make sure you you pick that time. Make sure it suits you, and thereby let your mind engage. Number three, invite friends. Uh, About 10 years ago, I was sitting in a men's Bible study. It was a breakfast thing on Saturday, and we were just talking about reading the Bible. And we had an elder who, after listening to probably something very similar to what I'm telling you, um, he stood up and said, but I'm not doing that. (laughs) How do I do that? And the pastor is like, just do it. (laughs) I don't know. Just read, dude. And he's like, "I, I wish somebody would call me and tell me to read my Bible. And so being, you know, uh, more passionate than wise at the time, I guess, I stood up, I'll do it. (laughs) And um, what ended up happening is for the next three years, every single day, like I said, 5 p.m., that's how I found out, I would call him at 5 p.m. Norm, what did you read today? Here's what I read. What are the parallels? How can I pray for you? Five minutes. That was by far the most worshipful and transforming, accountable years of my life. And the only reason I broke it off, and this guy was 80, <laughs> and I was, I was like 22 at the time, and he didn't care. I loved it. What a guy. But just to find that the only reason I gave that up is because I moved, and he got busy with something, and I, maybe he got sick, or I can't remember exactly, but circumstances put a stop to it. And I have been dying to have that kind of relationship again. Right now what I do is we do, uh, do you guys know Bible.com? They actually have plans that you can join with groups and then like keep each other accountable. We do that in our youth group. It's amazing. And if I'm not reading it for three or four days, I get hit. You need to be hit so that you learn to be faithful. Invite your friends. Number four, if you don't like what the Bible says, Understand it's not Scripture that's wrong, but realize that you have just found a stronghold of the natural flesh living inside you still. There are pockets of flesh alive, hiding, feeding off the crumbs in your brain, trying to figure out how it can just survive by you throwing it a bone every now and then. We think it's not there. We think it's under control, but we have not mortified it, and therefore it's alive. And you need to understand that when you encounter those things, you need to understand that it's your response that is wrong, not God's. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 does, uh, that the natural mind does not accept the natural thing, or does not accept the things from the Spirit, but rather considers it foolishness. And you need to be ready to encounter the feeling that God's word is foolishness, because if you don't know that, then when you hit it, you'll you'll be swerved off track. Don't reject it. God says that in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And therefore, we have a responsibility, responsibility to love God's word, to love God's ways, and love God's thoughts. Because his word is higher than our word. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And finally, I could just beat that to death. I would love to make a whole sermon just on that. But finally, look unto Christ for transformation because when you do, He wills that you be transformed according to His likeness. When you look unto Christ, you will be transformed. Very likely, you will read something that says, don't do what you are doing. 
I myself do many things that Scripture says don't do that. And I find that after I read it, I still do that, right? But the reality is that I am called to, to move out of that sin love and to move into obedience. And even though I still sin from time to time, God says that if I go to him in repentance, he is faithful and just to forgive. And what's more, he promises that while I am sinning now, if I look unto his word and lay aside every sin and wait, then I will be transformed into his likeness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that when we go and cast our eyes unto Jesus, that we will be washed, that's forgiven, but then we will be sanctified. That's the transformation. And then we will be justified and brought before God and that our sins will be no more. And that we need only look unto Jesus because salvation comes from Lord Jesus by the power of his Spirit. That's where we go, looking unto him. In, in fact, the book of Hebrews puts it this way. When you are trying to get rid of your sin, it describes it as weight that clings so closely. So one of the things that I was told by Jed when I first uh, came to visit, he said, because we're coastal people, right? He says, Jeff, when you come here, there are two things that you need. Well, six things that you need. The first three are chapstick, chapstick, chapstick. And then the second three are towels, towels, towels. <laughs> and, and I experienced that a lot in Korea, a lot in Japan when I was there. Um, but one of the things that I noticed is I get what Paul's saying, that sin clings so closely, but we're called to cast it off anyways. In fact, uh, at, when I was there in, in Japan, I would like, you guys probably know this because it gets it's humid, but you try to take off your shirt at the end of the day and it's like, stuck. <laughs> you can't get it off. I had to go to my roommate. Can you help me take my shirt off? And it's really embarrassing to ask a roommate to help you get undressed at the end of the day, but he got me back because he came up to me and asked me to shave his back. So that's <laughs> for you guys and you get roommates, get ready to get intimate. <laughs> it's no secrets. Um, but that's the reality. We are called to take off sin and it does not want to leave. But he says that, that if we lay aside every weight and sin running after with endurance in the race set before us by looking unto Jesus, then it will fall off by his power, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If your mind is not on God while you are reading, then you will not be transformed. But if your mind is on Jesus while you are reading, your mind and body will be trans well, glorified later, but your behavior will be sanctified, Right? This is the power. This is your calling. And it is, I promise you, your joy to be transformed according to his likeness. The more we look unto him, the more we become like him. And where do I learn to be like him except in his word? The ultimate tragedy of this story is that Micah's name is short for Mikayahu, which means, who is like God? And yet this entire story we're reading that his answer is, God is like me. Or rather, I am like God. That's his answer. And that's everybody's answer if we are not reading his word. But God says that in Romans chapter 8, we cannot, if those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but the one who loves him, who keeps his word, no matter how offensive to the flesh it may be, God says that that person loves the Lord and that the Lord loves him in return and that we will have victory by overcoming the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word that transforms. And Father, I pray today that you can help us to love you and your ways more 
and to forsake our own ways, to pour contempt on all of our pride. For it is then that while we feel righteous now, we will become righteous then. By the power of your word and transformation, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.